I was uh, a little surprised the other day when a chaplain came into Shar's room wearing a tie, and I was, as usual during the week, wearing a sports shirt and jeans. When I was introduced to him, he said, I thought you were a minister. You look like one. Now, I seldom hear that. In fact, one day when I was heading for my Harley in the clergy parking area of the hospital, someone made a point of letting me know that it was in the clergy parking area. Uh, When I told him I was clergy, he said, you sure don't look like it. Well, I do have to admit, it's not unusual for someone to say to me, you don't seem like a preacher. Now, I trust they're not saying I lack integrity or faith or commitment to Christ. I hope they're only saying that I'm different, that I don't dress like most preachers or act like most preachers or even think like most preachers. If that's what they're saying, it's okay because it's probably true. I don't fit the preconceived ideas that many have about religious professionals. But then again, neither did Jesus. He was different. He was different. What he said was different, and what he did was different. And as we've seen, he even had the power over disease and nature and evil and sin. Still, his religious contemporaries didn't like him because he wasn't like them. He didn't follow the practices and traditions that were important to them. And that led them to confront him as he was feasting with tax gatherers and sinners. And they asked him, actually they asked his disciples, why they didn't fast like they did. Well, Jesus' answer makes it clear that it's not business as usual in the religious world when he's around. We pick up our study in Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through 17. And the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and the tear, worst tear results. Nor do men put new wine into old wineskins, Otherwise, the wineskins burst and the wine pours out and the wineskins are ruined. They put new wine into fresh wineskins and both are preserved. Now, both the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist were accustomed to a more somber religious experience than what was evident in the lives of Jesus and the disciples. It may have, in fact, been on one of their designated fast days that Jesus and the disciples were feasting. And they questioned him about it. Jesus responded by simply saying that they weren't sad. 
They didn't have a need to mourn. So why should they be fasting? Now, he did note that there would come a time when his disciples would be so distraught that they couldn't eat. A time when the bridegroom would be taken away from them, referring no doubt to his arrest, crucifixion, and three days in the tomb. But for now, it would be silly for them to fast. The bridegroom was there. And the disciples were like guests at a wedding feast, enjoying themselves and his company. It wouldn't make sense for them to fast just because it was a traditional fast day. Things were different now. Jesus had come and he was with them to expect them to conform to the old ways after the new had come would, be, would, would make as much sense as trying to patch an old garment with a new unshrunk piece of cloth. It wouldn't work. Because once the new patch would get wet and then dry, it would shrink up and pull away from the old garment and make the tear even worse. It'd be like putting new wine into old, hard, inflexible wineskins. They wouldn't be able to expand as the wine fermented, as new wineskins do. And they would burst open and everything would be lost. Jesus was making it very clear that something brand new had come upon the religious scene. And it couldn't be restricted by old traditional forms and limitations. What he was bringing to the world wasn't a revised dead orthodoxy. It was a dynamic living relationship with the one who has power over death. And while he was saying it, he was given an opportunity to prove it. While he was saying these things to them, behold, there came a synagogue official and bowed down before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and began to follow him, and so did his disciples. Now, Matthew's account of this incident is a condensed version of what we find in Mark and Luke's accounts. In the other Gospels, we discover the name of this synagogue official was Jairus, and we learn that the girl was 12 years old. And most importantly, we learn that when Jairus came to Jesus, his daughter was still alive, but at the point of death. Now, Matthew skips over these details and simply points out that the girl did, in fact, die. When Jairus first came, she was still alive. Now, Jairus was an official, a ruler of a local synagogue. And as such, he was no doubt a man of considerable standing in the community, especially the Jewish community. For him to risk his reputation by coming to a controversial itinerant teacher for help tells of his desperation. No doubt he had done everything else he could do to save his only daughter. And this Jesus, who had built up a reputation as a healer, was his last resort. So Jairus 
came to Jesus, fell at his feet, and pleaded. My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come lay your hands on her that she may get well and live. Apparently, Jairus didn't have as much faith in Jesus as did the centurion. The centurion said there was no need for Jesus to come to his house. He could just say the word and his servant would be healed. But then again, this was Jairus' daughter. Jairus asked for Jesus to come and he simply rose and followed him. Jesus honored the faith that Jairus showed by coming to him and asking. Faith that he had in Jesus even in the face of death. Something was going to happen, however, on the way to his house that would take that faith even deeper. And behold, A woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she was saying to herself, if I only touch his garment, I should get well. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. And at once the woman was made well. Now again, Matthew has abbreviated the account. And in doing so, we aren't told of something that happened while Jesus was ministering to this woman that would really test Jairus' faith in him. But before we get to that, let's look briefly at this encounter that Jesus had with a woman on his way to Jairus' house. Mark tells us that a, a great multitude was pressing in on Jesus as he made his way through the streets. And then in the crowd was a woman who had been hemorrhaging for 12 years. Now Luke also fills in much of the detail for us, but he avoids one tidbit that Mark includes. Mark tells us that she had endured much at the hands of the physicians and had spent all she had and was not helped at all, but had grown worse. Well, Dr. Luke doesn't mention that fact. But the reason doctors couldn't help can probably be explained by the 11 cures for a woman with a continual menstrual flow that were suggested in the Talmud. Included were carrying a little bag containing the ashes of an ostrich egg, Carrying a barley corn found in the dung of a female donkey. And sitting at the crossroads, holding a cup of wine and letting someone come up behind you and frighten you by yelling, Arise from your flux! (laughs) She'd probably done all those things. But nothing worked. Then she heard about Jesus. And she thought, if I can only touch his garment... I'll get well. She worked her way through the crowd, came up behind Jesus and touched the fringe of his cloak, one of the tassels that Jewish men wore on their outer garments. 
And Mark says, immediately the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Someone else felt something as well. Jesus felt power going out of him. Apparently, it cost Jesus something personally to be able to heal. Now, I do not understand it, but he sensed it. And he turned around and asked, who touched me? The disciples thought it was a stupid question. Since everyone was pressing in on Jesus, but the woman knew that he was talking about her. She therefore came, trembling before him, and told him the whole story. When she finished, he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. That was a beautiful encounter. But I imagine there was at least one person who wished it had never happened. What do you think Jairus was thinking while all this was going on? Come on! She's had this problem for a long time. It's not life-threatening. My daughter is dying. While Jesus was still talking to her, someone came from Jairus' home and told him, Your daughter's died. Why trouble the teacher? It was too late. She was gone. Jairus had come to Jesus and had expressed faith in him in the face of death. But now death had come. Now he had to accept the fact of death. It was too late. Or so he thought. But Jesus overheard the message, and he said to Jairus, Do not be afraid. Keep on believing, and she shall be made well. Could Jairus still have faith while facing the fact of death? Apparently so. They continued on their way to his house. And when Jesus came into the official's house and saw the flute players and the crowd in noisy disorder, he began to say, Depart, for the girl has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. When the crowd had been put out, he entered, took her by the hand, and the little girl arose. And this news went out into all the land. According to Mark's gospel, Jesus allowed no one but Peter, James, and John to accompany him the rest of the way to Jairus' house. And when he got there, he was greeted by the expected commotion. The flute players had already arrived, and the wailing women were doing their job. Jewish regulations required that even the poorest of families hire four flute players and one wailing woman to appropriately express their grief upon the death of a family member. Jesus told them all to leave because the girl wasn't dead. 
only asleep. They laughed at him. They had seen death many times, and this little girl was dead. Nevertheless, Jesus ran them off, went into the room where the girl was lying, accompanied by her father and mother and three disciples. He then took the girl's hand and said, Talitha kum, little girl, I say to you, arise. Dr. Luke reported that her spirit returned, and she arose immediately. Jesus told her parents to give her something to eat, and then instructed them to tell no one what had happened, but obviously that order wasn't followed. How could you keep this a secret? A little girl who had died was now alive, and the news went out into all the land. Jesus has power over death. In his presence, death is not final. It's merely sleep. Jairus had learned that in the company of Jesus, he could have faith in the future of death. And so can we. The Apostle Paul made that very clear in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, 1 through 8. 4, 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always Be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Jesus has power over death. And because of Him, we can have faith in the face of death, in the fact of death, and in the future of death. Out of the fear and dread of the tomb, Jesus, I come. Jesus, I come. I hope you can sing that and mean it this morning. If not, I invite you to come forward and entrust yourself to the only one who does have power over death.